Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. For those of you who don't know me, uh, we are excited and glad that you are here this morning worshiping with us. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Um, we are going to be going, <clears throat> as Kelsey kind of mentioned this morning, uh, into a topic that uh, is very weighty um, and oftentimes doesn't make us feel very good. It's the topic of sin. Um, we have been walking through our Christian story, Christian belief, and Christian formation series the last couple of weeks, uh, and last week is going to open up, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later on. Um, he talked, talked about the fall and how sin and death entered into the world and into humanity, and so what I get to present this morning is our Christian belief, where uh, some of our formations of what sin looks like, uh, where the Bible depicts or shows uh, sin to be, our, our nature as human beings. Um, and so we're going to be taking a look at that. Um, again, I know it's not always the easiest or most fun topic to talk about, uh, but in reality, if we are paying attention to who God is, His holiness, His righteousness, his goodness, um, ultimately, we should be like Isaiah in chapter 6 when he sees the goodness of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord, and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. This is what the holiness of God should lead us to, a humility and repentance uh, as we look to him. Now, most of you guys might not recognize this, but you are, and I are subject matter experts in sin, right? I don't know if there's anything that you can say you're a subject matter expert in, but you can definitely say that you are when it comes to sin. I can say that when it comes to sin. In the mid-1900s, um, the Times in London sent out a question to a bunch of authors, famous authors, and they asked this. What is wrong with the world? And one of the authors, his name is G.K. Chesterton, if you're familiar with his book, Orthodoxy, or if you're familiar with his cool little trio that he hung out with, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, uh, they're called the Inklings. Um, if you're familiar with him, he wrote back to the Times this sentence, asking, what is wrong with the world? He said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K., Dear sirs, I am. G.K. Chesterton recognized what I hope for us to see this morning is that by nature, who we are, we are sinful people, self-absorbed, always pursuing our own desires. And that sin is far more destructive than we even recognize. So if, you'll, if you have your Bibles open... You'll follow along, read along with me in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. This is what he has to say about sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time. 
Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the beautiful songs we sang this morning. Lord, as we walk into such a weighty topic, Lord, one we might not think about all the time. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your truth about what sin is, how it affects us. And Lord, help us to see in the, in the midst of this weightiness the beautiful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while sin is destructive within us, Lord, we, we have a Redeemer in Christ. And by His blood, we are forgiven, we are healed, we are no longer condemned because He has taken that on for us. So Lord, I pray that in the weightiness of sin, as your word says, it would lead us to repentance, it would lead us to humility, and lead us to love you more dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I talked about already, what we looked at last week was the fall of man. Dwayne showed us the story of the fall. He introduced to us how sin and death came into the world. He showed us that sin is our foundational problem. You see, Adam and Eve, as we saw last week, they were given commands, right? They were given commands of being fruitful and multiplying, having dominion and ruling over the earth. And then they were told to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we walk through the story in Genesis 3, we see that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed. And in their disobedience, sin and death entered the world. This is what God meant when he commanded and said to them in Genesis 2, 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for, the, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now one of the things I want us to see before we jump into what is sin and how it affects us is even in the fall, God's grace and mercy is shown to mankind, to Adam and Eve, it's not just in Genesis 3.17 where God says that from the seed of woman will come your Savior. But we see that after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not immediately suffer physical death. And this is important for us to recognize. R.C. Sproul would say it like this, justice was delayed. We have, we have this saying that justice delayed is justice denied. But that is not the case in creation and the fall of man. The full measure of justice was delayed so grace would have time to work. Here, the delay of justice was not the denial of justice, but the establishing of grace and mercy. We see early on the character of God, even in the fall of man, that he was showing grace and mercy and what that would look like throughout time. But death did come that day. As Augustine would go on to say about Genesis 3, death came in three ways. Spiritual, physical, and eternal. And if we were to be asked as Christians what death was given, we say it was all. No longer were Adam and Eve's bodies free from sin. Now they were marred by sin. Their bodies were corrupted. And they began to receive this slow decay. And eventually, they would return to dust. Now, they were separated from the presence of God, so their spiritual reality was no longer in His presence. 
able to walk with him. And finally, without something to reconcile them, they were separated from God eternally. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 6. This is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death brought physical, spiritual, and eternal death to Adam and Eve as well as all mankind. And from this death we find corruption and the fracturing of relationships. Not only the fracturing of Adam and Eve, and then even into Genesis 4 as we read this morning with Cain and Abel, but we also see the fractured relationship between God and man. The most important relationship that's fractured is the vertical one that comes in the fall. And as we close out Genesis 3, we saw that the separation between God and man is God's removal of his presence. And this is important for us to remember because throughout the Old Testament we see this theme play out, that God removes his presence. He removes his greatest blessing from the people of God. And that is the greatest tragedy that they ultimately receive. And it's one that if we are not reconciled back to God, it's our greatest tragedy. It's to have God's presence removed from our lives. So what I want us to see this morning in Genesis, from Genesis 3 and on throughout the rest of Scripture and really the reality of our lives is that this foundational problem that all mankind has is sin. I thought to myself, um, what would be the best question for us to, to kind of think through this morning? Um, and I was drawn back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you're familiar with the first question of this Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? That is our chief end. That is our chief goal in life, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Then what is the chief problem that we have? Why can't we enjoy God and glorify him forever? The answer is sin. It's our sin nature. It's the sin that we choose to do. We are like, as C.S. Lewis says, half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This is our state. And as David says, this is our state from birth. Psalm 51, 5 tells us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There is no part of us, there is no part of mankind that is not marred or corrupted by sin. Even our good works. Without Christ, even our good works are marred by sin. As Isaiah 64 tells us, they are like filthy rags. And we have to understand that we are not merely sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. That is our nature. It is who we are. Everything we think, do, or say is marred by sin. And if we can't come to grips with what the Bible says our ultimate problem is, 
we're not going to be able to understand what the Bible's solution for this problem is. So whenever I talk about sin or whenever I get into discussions about this topic, oftentimes the question presents itself, and you may be even thinking about it right now, are people inherently good? Are people good or are people inherently bad? And I think when it comes to the topic of sin, as well as when we start talking about grace and mercy, but specifically the topic of sin, the church, in, and this is just my opinion, it may be more my experience, the type of church I grew up in, maybe you guys will share in this as well, but the church has not done a good job of differentiating between what a moral, good, worldly person might look like or when they do good things versus a righteous good that the Bible calls us to be. Right? A worldly, moral good is done with... It, it ends on self, but it's done for the betterment of humanity. Right? Nonprofits, people going and uh, helping others uh, when there's uh, moral integrity that... Even if someone is a non-believer, they can do this good in the world. But a righteous good is different. A righteous good is having a good standing before God and Him declaring you righteous because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But what I, wanna, what I want to do when I bring this up is show you that people can do worldly or moral good for the betterment of society. And oftentimes, where we, I think we find this distinction or maybe even tension when we talk about good and evil is that we see non-believers, people who have not put their faith in Christ, oftentimes act better than people in the church who claim to be believers. Or we grow up in church and we're told that this world is sinful and immoral and they, they're just going to live out as they live and it's just terrible. So you don't, want to, you don't want to look like the world. And, and honestly, we, we don't. We want to look like Christ. We want to be imitators of Christ. But what this thought process can do is we can have this tension of, hey, I, I've got non-believing friends, and they're, they're pretty good. They treat others better than people in the church. They love others better than fill in the blank. And so there can be this world, worldly moral good that we see in people that sometimes we find tension with because we don't recognize the two categories of righteous good and moral good. Like how often do we see on social media, or maybe you saw this during the pandemic, maybe you see it every once in a while on Facebook wall, Instagram, whatever, it might pop up that somebody is doing something good. Right? They're saving somebody from uh, a flood, or money is supported for somebody who has cancer. Fill in the blank. We, we see this happen, and oftentimes what you see in those comments, right, is my faith in humanity is restored. And what that is revealing is people recognize that there is some type of evil or bad that's happening in this world that they're seeing more often than not. And people are doing some type of moral good. But then you can go on the same social media platform or turn on the news and you can see that there are atrocities being committed all over the world. 
There's oppression happening under governmental re regimes. There's people being abused or mistreated, sometimes even in the name of religion. And, and that's where we think, we can't help but think, man, this world is, is messed up. And so to go back to my original question, are people inherently good or are people inherently bad? There is an answer to that. The Bible does give us one. But what I want us to understand and what I'm trying to get at this morning is this reality that people can do good things. And when they do, what is happening is they are reflecting the image of God that has been given to them or that they've been made in. See, this is the part of the doctrine of the Imago Dei, is that all mankind is made in the image of God. And so when they do something that is inherently good, they're reflecting this image. And yet when people sin, including Christians, what we're doing is we are marring that image. So people can do good and reflect the image of God. But are people inherently good or are they inherently bad? The answer is simple. We are all sinners. And until we grasp on how ugly and heinous our sin is before a holy and righteous God, we can never see Jesus as he is meant to be seen. So here's the grand umbrella that I want to give this morning. This is a general idea, and you're going to hear me repeat it a lot, is that your sin is more destructive than you know, and Jesus is more necessary than you can imagine. I'm going to say this one more time. Your sin... Not just sin in general, not just sin that's in this world, not the sin that you see with other people. Your sin is more destructive than you know. And Jesus is far more necessary than you can imagine. And the only people who see Jesus as a great Savior are those who see that they are great sinners. Jesus will not be all-satisfying, all-comforting, and all-important to you until you understand the ugliness of sin. So here's what I want to do this morning with that understanding. I want to answer three questions. What is sin? What makes sin so bad? And what is our only hope? So what is sin? What makes sin so bad? And what is our only hope? So I'm going to ask this question to you guys. What is sin? Anybody want to answer? No? All right, that's fine. What's that? Missing Mark? Yeah? Alyssa, I kind of thought you might be able to answer. Okay, it's good. Uh, I, I only call it Alyssa because she, I know that she teaches her kids the catechisms. And so I'm about to repeat one of them. So, uh, so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as well as the London Baptist Confession of 1689, answer this question, what is sin like this? Sin is what is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I know we don't talk like that anymore, um, so I'm going to try to break that down for you. Sin is doing what God forbids or refusing to do something he commands. That's essentially what the catechism is saying. Doing what God forbids or refusing to do what he commands. And we all know these things. We all, we all know what these things are, right? We know them in our own lives. We, we can see them in, in and around the world. Whether we've been in church for our whole life or have never stepped in church or opened the Bible, there are two realities when it comes to sin that we know what they are. 
For those who have never opened the Bible, we know because God's law is impressed on our conscience. Right? Children, if you go upstairs, you, you can see that they know the difference between right and wrong. They know the difference between what stealing is and then what being given a gift is. Right? Something freely given. We know those differences. Right? We know that when we go to Costco and we get a bunch of free samples, that's not stealing. <laughs> right? But if we walk into Costco and take that same thing and walk out, and it's not a free sample, it's stealing. We don't, have, we don't have to have the Word of God in front of us to know that because it is impressed on our conscience. Right? Or we know what sin is. We know what God forbids, or we refuse to do what He commands because we have been revealed it by Scriptures. We have been shown in the Scriptures what His commands are and what He tells us not to do. We know the differences. And this, these commands, what they do, and, and Paul talks about this in Romans 7, these commands, this law, it reveals our unrighteousness. It reveals our lawlessness. Paul writes this, starting in verse 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 1 John 3, 4 also says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So the breaking of God's command, not doing what he has called us to do, or disobeying, or refusing to do something he's commanded, is a sin, and it's a sin of lawlessness. And it comes out oftentimes in two ways. And you might have heard these two words before. If not, then I'll go on to explain them. But we sin through commission or omission. Right? Commission is the thing we do actively that God has called us not to do. Sometimes this has to do with physical things, right? God has told us not to steal. God has told us not to slander or gossip or bear false witness. And so those are physical things that we can do. But sometimes this has to do, even, even using the idea of stealing, right? God calls us not to steal. So we don't physically steal, but at times we can spiritually steal, right? We can steal God's glory or seek to steal God's glory if we don't pay attention. And so this is a sin of commission when we actively do what God has called us not to do. But then there's the sin of omission, not doing what God has called you to do. And this one, we tend to give ourselves a pass. We tend to give ourselves a pass because we're not really doing anything. So let's take one of the, the commandments. Actually, 
since Jesus said the two greatest commandments, or the commandments can be summed up in two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, let's take the love your neighbor as yourself, right? A sin of commission to actively, things that we actively do that God has called us not to do when it comes to loving our neighbor, we are called to actively not bear false witness against our neighbor. We're called to not slander or gossip or lie about them. Even if we don't like them. Even if they're getting on our last nerve. We are called to not enter into those types of conversations, those ways in which we can bear false witness. But loving our neighbor in the sin of omission can be far easily done. When we are called to love our neighbor and that same neighbor who frustrates us, that same neighbor who disrupts the the neighborhood or the community, gets on our last nerves, we're called to love them. And so when we write them off, when we say, I'm I'm not going to show them kindness, I'm not going to show them mercy, we are sinning by omission because we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And this, this really convicted me even this week because one of the questions I began to ask and I hope you guys begin to ask is what, what does loving my neighbor look like? Not just my neighbor in my neighborhood, but those around us in the sphere, my spheres of influence. What do those neighbors look like and how am I not loving them well? How am I not loving them well by commission or omission? And what I've seen, again, even in my own life, that there are times specifically during this pandemic where I fall into one of these categories of not loving my neighbor well because of my own pride, because of my own thoughts, because of my own things that I want to do. And so this is the reality of my own sin before you guys, but I think for all of us, right, when it comes to the commands of God, how are we sinning by commission and omission? Because we know, or because this is, this is what the Bible shows us when it comes to those sins that we have within us. They damage who we are. Thomas Brooks writes, Sinful commissions stab the soul, but sinful omissions starve the soul. Not doing what we're called to do, walking, not walking in the obedience of the Lord leads us to have a soul that is withered. As David cries out in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 32 is a classic psalm of confession. And what David is doing early on in this psalm is saying that when I did not confess my sin, it was wasting me away. This is what sin does within us. Sinful commissions stab the soul. Sinful omissions starve the soul. And we're all guilty of this, right? It's it's not just the wicked. It's not just the immoral. It's not just the over-religious. It's all of us. 
And we like to make excuses or paint ourselves in a better light, right? We compare our sin to someone else's sin. And when we do that, we're always going to nail it. We're always going to be better than that other person. But Romans 3 is clear. We are all guilty when it comes to sin. Paul, quoting from the psalm, says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's not talking about the desperately wicked or immoral here. He's not talking about the right. The, he's not talking about people who uh, just do heinous crimes, right? He's talking about all of us. He's talking about the entire state of mankind. He goes on to say, "Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips." Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is mankind basically good or basically bad? The reality is that we are all corrupt. This applies to all people of all ages. Paul, later on in chapter 3, goes on to say that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. Not just the immoral, not just the irreligious, but the moral and the religious. All of us fall short of the glory of God. This is what sin is. Now what makes it so bad? Joe Thorne writes, the sinfulness of sin is this, it works against your humanity and it works against God. Sin will counteract and corrupt your happiness, your rest, your contentment, your conscience, your beauty, and your understanding. Sin will steal the happiness that you're seeking to that you find in those things that are pleasurable. You see, this is sin's great trick. It's like drinking salt water from the ocean, hoping to be hydrated. It erodes our happiness, and it robs us of our rest. It robs us of our rest in our own conscience. Think about this. Sin robs that rest in our own conscience because we can constantly be thinking about the sin that we've done. Nobody, nobody knows your own sin like you do. And sin can rob us of our rest in our conscience because of it. And then what it tricks us to do is that we try to hold tightly to the scales that we think that are going to operate in our favor, right? We don't have rest in our conscience because of the sin that we've committed, but then sin leads us to try to think that our good deeds will outweigh all of that sin. And so we have no rest. It robs us of rest and contentment. Because we are constantly desiring more. We do not believe that God is enough or that he has given us all that we need. And it robs us of the beauty of humanity. It robs us and it erodes our happiness. Sin also erodes our happiness by working against our relationships. What was meant to be beautiful that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 is a good thing between Adam and Eve has been corrupted in the fall. 
and has been fractured because of sin. And we see not just in Genesis 3, but all throughout Scripture, and again, even into our own lives, that marring of sin working itself out in relationships. One of the, I think, probably one of the greatest places that we can see sin being revealed in our relationships is when we are close with one another, whether it be marriage, whether it be we're living with people not in a sinful way, but, you know, having roommates, having kids, right? Like, marriage reveals our sinfulness. I wouldn't know, but uh, from my understanding of husbands and wives, does marriage not reveal your own sinfulness? Yes? Okay. Maybe not. All right. Maybe marriage is awesome. Okay, thank you. That's what I was looking for. Good. But you realize that you're more sinful than you actually think you are before you went into marriage, right? Singles, when we, when we have somebody move into our home or we move into an apartment or move into a house with somebody else and we want to live with our friends, what do we quickly realize? That we are more self-absorbed than we thought we were before we moved in with them. We realize how selfish we are. We probably also realize how selfish the other person is, but we're only talking about ourselves. Right? We sin in parenting with kids. We see that. Parents, how sinful do you realize you actually are when you have a mini-me running around acting just like you? Right? Now, I don't have kids, and they've given me permission to use them as examples, but I love Ezra and Wyatt and Shep like my own. And so it's funny to, to see them act this out. Um, and one of the funniest stories I've heard recently is Dwayne telling Ezra, Ezra, this is my house, and what I say goes. And then not 12 hours later, Dwayne walking down the stairs, hearing Ezra say to Wyatt, Wyatt, this is my house. Whatever I say goes. And why it's so cute. He's just like, okay, I love you, Ezra. And so we, we, see, we see sin flowing out of even kids. I mean, if you really want to see this, go and serve up in little districts. You'll learn real quick, especially those kids that have a lot of same gifts. But children, being in relationships, whether married or single, when you are close to one another, you start to realize how sinful you actually are. Sin erodes our happiness and works against our relationships. Our sin is far more destructive than we know, and Jesus is far more necessary than we can imagine. Sin stretches into every corner of life. It impacts our lives, the lives of our families and our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some sins cause years of hardship and pain, not just for one person, but for entire families or groups of individuals. And sometimes sin causes us to carry hefty burdens of guilt and shame. And our sin lingers, or can linger in our lives, like a disease or cloud that hovers over us, and we can't get past it. Sin is far more destructive than we know. But sin also erodes our humanity. You see, when we sin or when others sin, oftentimes what we can do in brushing it off is saying, eh, I'm only human, right? But that's not why we sin. That's not why you sin. That's not why I sin. We sin because by nature we have 
disordered loves and desires. We do not love that which we ought to love, and we love that which we ought to hate. As Paul tells us in Romans 7. I love the way one pastor puts it. When God created us in his image, we were not sinful, but we were human. And in the end, when God fully redeems us, we will be fully human, and yet we will not sin. So to be fully human is to not sin. To sin means that our humanity has been corrupted and we are acting more like beasts than humans who were made to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. This is what Asaph cries out in Psalm 73 when he realizes that he was acting in sin by coveting the lives of the world. He says, when I was convicted of my sin, I realized I was like a beast toward you. Sin corrupts and erodes our happiness and our relationships. It erodes our humanity. But most importantly, it is an offense to a holy and righteous God. Because in all of this, we can still tend to think that our own sin is small. Not that sin is small, but that our own sin is small. That's why I want to keep reiterating, your sin is more destructive than you know. And Jesus is far more necessary than you can imagine. Your sin is not just doing what God forbids or not doing what he commands. In doing those things, we are working against humanity that God has created and against God himself. And that's the most important thing I want you to hear this morning. The most important reality of sin is that we are over and against offending a holy, righteous God. You see, we often see sin done, or maybe we might do it to another person, and we just think it's just a small thing between man and man. But sin is, as R.C. Sproul would say, cosmic treason. In reality, it's a declaration of atheism towards God. In Psalm 51, after God sends the prophet Nathan to David to reveal his sin of seducing and committing adultery with Bathsheba, and if that wasn't enough, he had her husband Uriah murdered, we have David's confession in this revelation. And I think this is important for us to understand the weightiness of sin and who we offend. Psalm 51, 1 through 4 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's response in his sin is this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And on the surface, this seems to be an odd way to start a confession, especially with what I just explained David was confessing about or what was revealed to him. Because David had sinned in so many ways and against so many people. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Israel and their military by corrupting them. He sinned against the whole nation by not acting as a righteous king. 
It's hard to think of anybody in this story that David did not sin against here. And yet, what does he say in the beginning of his confession? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the reality. This is the reality of sin at the deepest level. What he says here is the truth. What makes sin so heinous, what makes sin so sinful is that it defies God. Is it awful that we hurt our friends? Yes. Is it sinful when we wound one another? Absolutely. And those things need to be confessed and brought to light. But beyond all the shame that we may experience because of sin, a much bigger guilt is there that we rarely are aware of or that we rarely talk about or recognize that when any sin that we commit, whether it be murder, as Kelsey talked about this morning, or whether it be cheating on our income taxes, the most offended party is always God. Sin is cosmic treason. God is a holy and righteous and just and merciful and gracious God. He is not like us. We are not like him. We are self-absorbed, self-obsessed. We are sinful. And because we are sinful, we are at odds with God. And as Romans says, hostile in mind. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the, fl- Excuse me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what sin is. This is who sin offends. It defies and denies God. Ralph Venning, in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, writes this, Sin is a denial of God. It is a denying of his sufficiency, challenging his justice, disowning his omniscience, despising his goodness, and abusing his grace. We deny God's sufficiency when we sin. Because God has given us himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has given us everything that we currently have and need. And yet we despise all of this, wanting more. We challenge his justice because we do not think that he is going to hold us accountable. We disown his omniscience because we do, not, we do our sin right in front of him. As if he doesn't see or doesn't know. We despise his goodness because everything that we know that is true and good and right about God, that he is beautiful and glorious and holy, we say, this is not what I want. I don't want to live and experience the way of God that flourishes in godliness. Instead, I want to go my own way. And we abuse his grace. Instead of recognizing his mercy and kindness towards us, and dwelling on these truths and allowing them to transform us and repenting of the sin that still clings to us, instead we use the time to fill up with more sin. Guys, our sin is this serious. And I hope that we can see that it runs deep within us. But it doesn't just run deep within us. Sin isn't just an inward thing, but it also stretches out around us. It impacts those in our lives. 
As I've said in the past, sin is deep, but it also reaches wide. There is no sin that can be done just in a vacuum. All sin is going to, at some level, affect those around you. And finally, sin is so serious because sin also leads to our condemnation. God doesn't send people to hell arbitrarily, right? That's not what the Bible says. The reason that we are judged by his righteousness for our unrighteousness or our lawlessness is because we are sinners. Now, I realized that this truth was actually pretty new to me because I grew up in a church that only wanted to talk about the love of Jesus and that the only reason Jesus actually came is just to have a relationship with you. The question was never asked, why did Jesus have to come? Or why did he have to die on the cross? Why did he have to shed blood? No, sin was not talked about in church for me that much growing up. And so when I look around, and maybe again you share this story, when I look around at a lot of my friends that grew up in youth group or in college ministry, they have walked away from the faith because when they are challenged with the question about God sending people to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus, they, they can't give a good and right answer of what condemns people. God doesn't send people to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. He sends them to hell because they are sinners. Sin is what condemns us, and yet we think that sin is a small thing. We think that it's not a big deal. We may not say it verbally, but we live it. And oftentimes we can think that God is just some soft grandfather ready to just give us forgiveness and love without any accountability. Sin is far more destructive than we know. And Jesus is far more necessary than we can imagine. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only one who can take care of your sin. Jesus is the only one that can heal you and rid you and remove you, remove your condemnation. And only in Jesus can you be made right before a holy and righteous and just God. Jesus takes on the condemnation that is due to us because of sin. And in trusting in Jesus, we then receive his righteousness that is imputed to us. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is saying that the law could not make you holy. The law could not make you acceptable. The law could not bring you into fellowship with God. Because all the law does is says, do this and live. But the reality is, when we read the law and what it requires... It shows us that we can't keep those standards. It shows that there are requirements that won't allow us to be righteous and that we need something outside of ourselves to step in our place. I love this example. It is like an x-ray or an MRI machine that shows you that there's a tumor within 
but it only reveals the problem. It can't save you. It can't heal you. You need something, the great surgeon outside of yourself to come and remove the tumor of sin. Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfilled the laws, the commands, and he is the only one that is acceptable before God. And when we place our trust in him as Lord and Savior, we then receive that righteousness. We now can come into the presence of God because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that has been given to us. When you find Jesus to be a great Savior, when you see that he is good and that your sins are forgiven and overcome, there you find true rest and true contentment. And that he is now at work within you to restore you back to the image of God. So what is the only way to deal with sin? Going to Jesus. Recognizing your own sin. Owning it. Being broken by it. Confessing and repenting of it. So this morning I want to ask, whether you're a believer or a non-believer here this morning, what prevents you from doing that? What prevents you from doing that? Because what the promise is when we are trusting in Jesus' righteousness is that we have rest and we have peace with God. Now, yes, as believers, we have union with God through Christ's death and resurrection. But I want us to recognize, and I'm sorry that I'm going to be short on this, but as believers, when there is unrepentant sin, our communion with God can wane and drift. So we, too, as believers, have to deal with our own sin. Our union with Christ is secure, but our communion with Christ can be marred. And so as believers, we too need to recognize and confess and be broken over our own sin. Sometimes in sermons like this, um, it's better to not give you three points on how to do this. (laughs) I think it's better in our application just to point you to Jesus to point you to believing in something that is outside yourself. And with this knowledge, seek to live a life of repentance and being broken over your sin and having your days impacted by that truth and that reality. Because, guys, we we need to see how deep our sin is. But in seeing how deep our sin is, we see how great and glorious our Savior is and what he has done for us. So I'm going to close in our time of communion. If the band wants to come up and uh, begin to close, one of the reasons that we do communion every single week is to remind ourselves. To remind ourselves of what the shedding of the blood and the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross did for us. And we recognize at the cross how great sin was. That blood needed to be shed. That death needed to come. 
And when we take communion, we are reminded of this beautiful truth. We begin to see the beauty of the cross and understand the gravity of our sin. And so each week, we want to help remind you of how sweet this reality is that we have with Jesus, that he went to the cross on our behalf, that all the wrath of God that would condemn us was poured out on him, and that, as Paul says, we then have received his imputed righteousness to us so that when God looks upon us, he no longer sees condemned sinners, but he sees sons and daughters who have been united with Christ. And all the promises and all the inheritance that Christ then receives is now given to us because we are in the family of God. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we can partake of communion and worship together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Your word tells us that it is in your mercy that you reveal our sin to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think through the reality of sin, how deep it is within us, how destructive it is within us, Lord, I pray that it leads us to repentance. I pray that it leads leads us to see how good and glorious and necessary you are. And in that truth, our love and affections are stirred more for you. And we live in such a way that points others to you. We thank you for this beautiful reminder of communion that we get to see each week how deep our sin runs, but how great and glorious a Savior we have. Let us cherish this time as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at